because the moment was about reflecting back to another human being that they're okay. You know, whether it's me being photographed or somebody on the cover of magazines or somebody serving a life sentence, that acknowledging another person's humanity and acknowledging that they exist is very powerful, very powerful. Hi, I'm Derek Mills. Welcome to The Glow Podcast. In this episode of The Glow Podcast, I'm speaking with my good friend, Robert Sturman, a photographer whose work, among other projects, has captured the poetry of yoga postures and the philosophy of mindfulness around the world. He describes receiving the gift of his first camera from his father and the simple but profound advice his father gave him, which was, take pictures of things you love. The advice stuck. And if you've experienced his work, you know the love comes through. He has found so many ways to celebrate humanity with his photography. Robert has photographed yoga classes in prisons, on military bases, and he's captured yoga as it is practiced by police officers and first responders. We discuss how he got started, what he learned from his mentors, his world travels, and his connections with yoga close to home. We also discuss what's next for Robert, the closing of a chapter in his life and the opening of a new one. For anyone curious about the cross-section of art and yoga and how that connection might help everyone see a better world ahead, deepen one's connection with oneself and the world, this conversation is definitely for you. Hey, Robert. So great to be here with you. Hey, thanks so much for having me, Derek. I've been looking forward to this one. I mean, you and I have known each other for a while, and I have the honor to uh, know you as a friend and to spend a lot of time with you. And hopefully we unpack some of the discussions that we've had over the years here together. I would love to. And yeah, we've known each other now for 10, 11, 12, 13, 14 years. Yeah, we met in 2009 at one of those events that we held at our first studio. That's bad was, math right there. It was, I think it was <laughs> like mid-2009. Yeah. Okay, that would make it 12 years. Yeah, I knew nothing about you. I was new to Los Angeles. I had just arrived in Los Angeles a couple of years prior to that. And in fact, I knew one person here in LA and that was a friend from college. You know, I was just this guy who wanted to beam yoga classes into my living room. And when we met, I was early on in getting my crash course in, you know, what at the time was like the Santa Monica asana, Santa Monica, modern postural yoga world. And uh, when we met, you seemed to already be fully integrated into that world, that community. And uh, I think we can get to that later on in this conversation. Um, but I do want to start first with your dad giving you a camera at 14. I think that's really cool. But before we get there, and since your humility will likely preclude you from uh, you mentioning anything about your accomplishments coming out in this conversation. Uh, if you don't mind, I'd just like to mention a few. Is that okay? Absolutely. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Is that Robert blushing? 
<laughs> All right. So Robert is an internationally celebrated photographer who in 2004 served as the official artist of the 47th annual Grammy Awards. And you don't mention this in your bio, but that was the first time a human was ever used in the art for the awards. Is that correct? That is correct. Very cool. And then I'm going to fast forward a bit. 2005, uh, you were commissioned by the United States Olympic Committee to create exclusive portraits of the Hall of Fame Olympians. And that year, the Living Wellness Foundation honored you with the Creative Visionary Award. And wow, you dug deep. <laughs> you don't have to dig very deep. You just go to your about page on your website. Okay. <laughs> but what I did not know is other honorees included the Dalai Lama. Uh, 2006, you collaborate with B.B. King to create his official 80th birthday portrait. Among a... Which was absolutely amazing to be invited on the bus to, to work with the, the King. Oh, I can only imagine. So I'll skip a few years. In 2009, you were chosen by the city of West Hollywood as their official artist for their 25th anniversary. And I think in that year, you were also chosen by FIFA World Cup soccer games to create uh, the art representing America's participation in the first ever World Cup held on the African continent. 2010, after Hurricane Katrina, you made five trips to New Orleans, uh, which resulted in a coffee table book uh, that celebrates 50 of New Orleans' finest musicians, and you give the proceeds to that or of that. Uh, well, the proceeds rather benefit musicians of Louisiana who lost everything in the hurricane. In 2011 to present, you started a new series of photographing, photographing rather, uh, within United States prisons, exploring yogis behind bars and the rehabilitation through the practice of yoga. We'll come back to that. In 2013, you started working with Africa Yoga Project based in Nairobi, Kenya, and you produced a portfolio recognized and celebrated by the New York Times. Very cool. Uh, one of those um, pieces actually hang in our, our office in Santa Monica, which we're grateful to have. 2015 to present, you began an extensive body of work uh, photographing yoga in the military. I'll fast forward a little bit. 2017, you collaborate with Warriors at East to create the Pearl Harbor Yoga Project. 2018, you were granted permission by the Department of Defense to publish an image of an active duty member of the United States military practicing yoga in full uniform. The image appeared on the November cover of Yoga Journal and was made possible by Warriors at Ease. Side note, you've had multiple Yoga Journal covers. 2009, in collaboration with Prison Yoga Project, you were invited by the Mexican government to photograph within the highest maximum security prison in the country, just outside of Mexico City. Now we could spend an hour long conversation on each of those, I'm sure. Uh, but I want to see where this could go in other ways. And so I want to start at the age of 14 when your dad gives you your first camera and let's see where that takes us. Uh, you've mentioned to me and I've heard you say this elsewhere that you asked him when he gave it to you, like, what should I take photos of? And so I'm curious, like, what, what did he say in its entirety and, and how did that impact you? Well, he dropped me off at boarding school, and that's a, a, a vulnerable and tender moment um, for a 14-year-old. Um, and when he dropped me off, he did uh, hand me a brand new Pentex K1000 camera, which 
I had no interest in photography. I mean, I liked it because we we just messed around at Disneyland, or you know, it was just neat to be able to take pictures and get slides, and and um, it was fun. But I never took a, a great interest in it. But when I asked him what I was supposed to take pictures of, I just asked it like not even really a serious question, and he answered with not a very serious answer. He said, I don't know anything that you love, but over the years, as I evolved, I realized that, I remembered that. And I realized that that was one of the most profound pieces of artistic advice that anyone would ever give me in my career. What a gift from a father to have the permission to let your art be driven by what pulls at your heart, like what you love, you know, versus some right. other outcome or some other prescribed uh, metric of achievement through use, use of that camera. Right. Quite, yeah. Quite that was gift. the seed. That was the seed. Um, with that came tremendous trial and error. I was not good at photography. Um, I, I was very clumsy at it. And I desperately was trying to make something decent, but it was so difficult for me. Art was not, never came natural to me. Um, but so I, I just, I tried so hard. And once in a while I would get lucky with a photograph that was kind of cool. And then what happened was I learned how to copy that luck, which would eventually lead to skill. But ultimately, underneath it all was this really deep desire to have an identity and to find myself and to feel okay in this world. And that's what drove me to try very hard with art and learn how to paint and draw and sculpt and, and all kinds of different forms of photography. It was, it was basically just because I was desperately in need of, of finding a place in this world and feeling okay. I want to come back to that concept of feeling okay, but as a brief side note, you mentioned the decades of skill you recently published a course, an online course where you take people through roughly about two and a half hours of, is it correct to say everything you've learned? And I mean, I, I like to say everything I've learned. Yes. Yes. Nice. I mean, obviously people have to discover things for themselves, but there's, there's no, there's no holding back. I'm sharing with everybody what I've discovered over the course of my career with a camera. Yeah, I highly recommend it. I watched it this past weekend and it's it's you being incredibly vulnerable and open and essentially sharing all of your insight and tricks and learnings. And yeah, I highly recommend it. We'll post it in the show notes so people know where to find it. Thank you. Actually, do you want to mention real quick where people can find it? Uh, you can find it on my website, uh, robertsturmanstudio.com or the link through my Instagram Everything leads to everything. If you want to find it, it's any link of mine will lead you there. And it's called A Celebration of Humanity Through the Art of Yoga Photography. 
And it's not just for people that want to make photographs of yoga. It's for people that just want to develop a better relationship with their camera, which is going to be attached to our skin for the rest of our lives, most likely. So we might as well learn how to use it um, more than with mediocrity and approach masterful. I love that. From photographing children, landscapes, pets, self-portraits, it doesn't matter. The camera is a great gift that we can use to tell stories that will last for generations to come and to help reflect back to other people that they are beautiful. And there's just so much power in the photograph if, we, if our intentions are beautiful. We'll come back to that when we talk about your work in prisons and, and working with um, teachers and, and students in yoga asana poses. But I want to come back to this concept of, of being okay. Like what, what at that age was driving you to feel okay? Like what was missing or what were you trying to express? I think that when you're 14, I don't know if it's, it's universal, but I think that uh, for me, obviously wasn't the first person to discover this, but I discovered sadness, uncertainty, insecurity, a whole lot of things. And um, I just had this driving force to try and, and fill myself with some sort of a meaning because I, I didn't know who I was at all. And I, I really didn't feel that good. Um, there, were, there was a lot of stuff going on internally. And creation was, was my outlet for that. And it would, it would be that way, which was a gift in a way because it, it caused me, inspired me to ferociously learn a craft. But it wasn't until later when I was introduced to uh, a yoga that I began to give myself permission to create my life, make my life full, and then create from a place of joy uh, that was just an expression of the life that I was living, to, that my life was more important than my art. Right. So you found other ways to feel okay. I definitely did. It didn't happen overnight, though. I think from about 14 years old to 30, I was working out a lot of stuff through my art, and I was much more of a cathartic creator, filling thousands of pages of sketchbooks. So it definitely didn't happen overnight, but I was able to eventually get out of the way and find peace and get good at relaxing, which is an essential ingredient for creativity. And ultimately, I was able to become an artist in service to life. You mentioned skill, developing skill, acquiring skill, learning. Uh, and then er also early on in your career, you studied with mentors both here in, in the US and in Europe. And you know, I've never chatted about this, but I realized that I'm curious about it. You know, as I was prepping for this conversation, like, are there any powerful nuggets of wisdom from those experiences that you still carry? With sure. You? I, I, uh, my first year at the university, I went to the University of California, Santa Cruz uh, for the first four years. And the first year, I, 
I met a photographer down in Carmel, which is about an hour south of Santa Cruz, and he was part of the um, the great group of photographers, like the old school black and white photographers from Edward Weston to Minor White and Alfred Stieglitz and and um, Ansel Adams. And I decided that I, I wanted to ask him if I could apprentice to him because I wanted to learn. And so I took basically about a year off from the university and uh, lived at his studio and apprenticed to him to learn um, about black and white photography. But I learned so much more from him. One of the great things that he taught me was that the ultimate goal of being an artist is to become a greater human being. And that statement... I would realize later was such a valuable tool in gaining people's trust so that it was natural for the people that I worked with to want to open up their world to me while I stood there with a camera in my hands. And another thing that he encouraged me to do is just never follow the fads and to keep a steady commitment to my own vision. I can still vividly hear him say with such sincerity we need artists who dare stand up and say, this is my work, this is my life, this is my passion, this is my truth. His name's William Giles, and I'm eternally grateful that I had the opportunity to study with him. And then John Torina? John Torina, he was a European-Italian painter, but I did not study with him in Europe. I studied with him when I did some graduate work at the Memphis College of Art. Mm. And his was more, even though he was a, just an amazing ethereal painter, which later echoes in my work, I think that what I learned from these people also was how they lived. That That was a great training because that's something that they leave out in in at the art academies is they which is probably one of the most important things in which why yoga and meditation should be taught at all of the academies but the how to live how to survive how to take care of yourself and take care of your mental health and and that's something that i that i learned uh survival from john Torina. he was a real survivor huh. was there anything specific that you learned and tactics, practices. Just that you can never give up, never give up as an artist. You just keep going because the the statistics of how many people remain artists 5, 10, 15 years after getting out of art school is just, it's so low. And he just really instilled in me that you can just never, ever, ever give up. And I watched him work tirelessly to sell paintings to private clients, galleries, hotels. And all the while, he never, ever missed a day of painting. He would drive out to the countryside in Arkansas and Tennessee to immerse himself in the landscape. And he had the work ethic of a Monet, of a Cezanne, of a Van Gogh. It, it was definitely his meditation, his devotion, and his daily practice. And it was a commitment to himself, his work that nourished him. What a teaching. That really was such a profound teaching. Was it a believing in yourself? Was it? Well, it's believing in, in myself, but it's also just 
to to never stop trying no matter how much how much rejection you have i mean you just you you read an impressive list of accolades but i got to tell you there were a lot of rejections for every single one of those so it's it's uh it's you have to just develop resilience and know that be so deeply immersed in your vision that you just keep going no matter what because it's easy to say screw it the world doesn't want me so that's what i learned from him to be deeply immersed in one's vision like how robust does that need to be like how for you is that i because i know you and we've chatted about this in various ways i know that's like deep to your core but it's it's more than words right it, one can say oh yeah i'm into this it's my vision i this is what i want to manifest but and this maybe gets to the role of the artist maybe the two are intertwined can you unpack that like what how do you think of this life force that you refer to as living your vision and and how is that connected to how you see yourself as an artist and 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 maybe broader in a broader manner how what is the role of the artist in society with respect to that excavation of or manifesting one's vision <laughs> what a question all right <laughs> <laughs> only because i know i know it's in there and i know we've discussed this and i i've benefited well, from your your point i'll try on one this. thing at a time and see if my memory serves me but uh, the Perfect. role of the artist uh um obviously that shifts and it's a it's a broad broad thing but it, it occurred to me um that the artist well, here, let me tell a little bit of story. So uh, uh, there's many different graduations, plateaus that an artist reach, reaches in their career in which one feels like they've been initiated into the, the brotherhood, sisterhood, the, the lineage, and, and is a part of the history of art and, and is welcomed into it. And there was a... There was a time about 15 years ago, I was sitting in a museum, I believe it was in Italy, and I was just sitting there, just looking around and watching the people, and it was probably 100 degrees outside, and it was very n nice and cool, and the museums are, uh, are always nice and cool, and they're sanctuaries, um, like cathedrals. And so I was in the house of, the, of art. And I looked around and I saw, wow, all these people lined up to, to, to see what these human beings had to say, you know? And so I realized that artists were painting the, the story of humanity with an emotional t texture that perseveres throughout the ages rather than a newspaper or a little story that comes and goes the work of the artist is cherished because of that the emotions that capture the time so eloquently and but then i 
took it a step further and I looked around like, okay, these are multi-million dollar buildings. The artwork is all secured. There's security guards everywhere, alarms everywhere. It's behind ropes, glass, all of this. And I thought, wow. And I looked around and I saw that artist committed suicide. That artist committed suicide. That artist lived a completely self-destructive life. That one did this. That one, I just, I realized that why didn't these human beings cherish themselves like their work is being cherished? And I saw it as a call to action for the new artist to begin to take responsibility for our lives and our growth because we had the tools. And that really was the marriage of yoga and art for me, because the tools were right in front of, of me to do that. And in addition, I was, I was very fortunate to have had a teacher during those years named Micheline Berry, who really encouraged me to find stillness on the mat and do the practice and sit in the discomfort, in the fire, and let it burn, let it burn through me. And that alone would would empty my help me empty myself out so I could obtain the, the clarity and the courage to rewrite the story of what it meant to be an artist and to give up the struggle. I'm not a big fan of the struggle. It's there's a lot of unnecessary struggle that occurs and it's just it it this allowed me to be able to give that up. The other part was about the standing in resoluteness about one's vision ah, and persevering. Just a lot of solitude and being comfortable with what you have to say. Uh, for me, it was, it's been very easy with, with the work that I've been doing the last, well, even before that with, my work is is always celebrated the vast diversity of the planet. And so for me there was just never a question. There was never a question that that was a, that was important. Right that those stories and just like the paintings on the wall, those stories of humanity are being preserved and 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 eliciting some sort of experience of being cherished through your work. And you've been capturing, you've been capturing the emotions of the time. Yes. That's the gift of the artist. Beautiful. All right. So I want to navigate us towards the yoga part of our conversation and the work that, um, correct me if I'm wrong. I think you're, you're mostly known for, at least in the circles you and I travel in, uh, but I want to start, and you started that around 2007, but I want to ask you about 2013 and the work you did within prisons. And, you know, you've mentioned to me, and you've likely mentioned this elsewhere, that everything you said, everything you needed to learn about being a photographer, you learned through or in your time at prisons. Like, what did you learn? And can you unpack that? Yeah, I learned so much. Uh, the The first thing I learned, and 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 
correction, the first time I went in, I believe was uh, January 2nd, 2011. And I had been photographing people who were going to be on the covers of magazines and and a real uh, somewhat glitzy, idealistic vision of yogis by the sea. And, but underneath that, what I realized was that the human being that was being photographed, whether they were in prison serving a life sentence or they were going to be on the cover of a magazine, essentially they just wanted to be seen. And I realized that the first couple of times I went to the prison because um, James Fox, the founder of Prison Yoga Project, came up to me once after and he said, did you see those guys light up? And I didn't know people were lighting up, but they, but I realized that they were. And I realized that when you pay attention to them, regardless of whether there's going to be a a finished product, that the product was absolutely insignificant as far as the moment was concerned, because the moment was about reflecting back to another human being that they're okay. You know, whether it's me being photographed or somebody on the cover of magazines or somebody serving a life sentence, that acknowledging another person's humanity and acknowledging that they exist is very powerful. Very powerful. That was the first thing that I learned. The second thing that I learned was when I first started sharing the work that I was doing in San Quentin and other prisons around California, not a lot of people were aware that yoga and meditation were going on in the prison system with so strongly in certain prisons. And at first, there was a lot of resistance, like, oh, they don't deserve that. But I realized that over time, if people saw an image enough, and they felt it on an emotional level, because we have a a better memory when we can feel it, rather than just statistics. So if they felt it, that eventually, it perpetuates reality. And so it's not fantasizing about a better world somewhere else. It's focusing on this world right here, right now, the great things that are occurring right now, and bringing that to life through photographs so that an audience can see it, feel it, and eventually it becomes the new normal. It becomes somewhat embedded into our culture. And hopefully it's a great idea. And I thought that it was important to uh, to find great ideas like that and to create images that would move people so that they remembered it and it could become part of us. And that was this that was a major thing that I learned that I would carry with me. Uh, all of it I carry with me. But the other thing that was profound was I think it was about the third time I visited a prison and there was a warden named Warden Coco Salinas. And um, she personally invited me into her prison to 
document the growing yoga program that she started. And after the class that I worked, that I photographed, I sat with her in her office for a long time and she would say something that would completely inspire my career that was so simple. She said, I noticed that the guys who do the yoga make better choices. And that was it. That, that was it. I make better choices. It's, it, that was it. Police officers make better choices. Firefighters make better choices. Everyone makes better choices when they take the time to, to practice. Yeah, you've shared stories with me in the past where, and maybe you can pick one that you'd like to share, where you know, either someone in the military, in a, a police person or firefighter, because of their consistent, whether it be meditation, movement, or contemplative practice, are in fact making better choices. Oh yeah, that was Officer Bridget Broussau up in Ontario, Canada. And so what happened was for many years, I would travel around to different communities and announced that I was going to be there on social media and people would sign up for shoots. And on this particular tour, I went to Toronto and a police officer signed up for one of my shoots. And when we were working together, first of all, she showed up in full trooper gear and then just did these amazing yoga poses. And it was, I, I was blown away, but really what, what, what captured my attention and fascination was when she started to, first of all, when she said, when I finished my teacher training, okay, so that it just didn't seem like that was something that you'd hear coming from a, from a cop. And then she, she proceeded to tell me about how conflicted she was about taking away someone's freedom and the power that police officers had and she she needed to resolve that conflict and it wasn't until she started to study the bhagavad gita and began to connect and identify with arjuna and arjuna was told that it's your job as a warrior to do the best job that you can that you have to do. And that's something that she really resonated with and kept in the back of her head when she goes, goes to work and when she has to take away someone's freedom. And that was a moment when she told me that story, I realized that, okay, these are the outliers. This is incredible. This, this is so fascinating to me. And this, this is going to fuel my work is to, to break out of the box and the homogenous world of yoga and to begin building the trust so that people would come to me and allow me to tell their story. And it just started happening. People started to come to me, commanders in the Navy, breast cancer survivors, veterans, people without limbs. And it was so exciting to me. But, you know, I, I thought about it during that shoot. And I thought, if someone had told me that it, while I was at the art academy, that one day I'd be working with cops and people in the military and Maasai warriors. Um, I would have I thought they were crazy. But it's the greatest thing that, that's happened to my career. And one of the more exciting things is to work with the outliers. You know, one of the things that 
I love about your vision and you know, why you do this work. And going back to your earlier comment about, you know, when people have this evocative feeling through the art, through your art, that that can normalize and perpetuate reality, as you said. And I've also heard you say that when we see with more respect, the world changes. And so I've always known you to have the conviction that by through your work, you feel like you're helping to change the world. Is that accurate? Well, I can only hope to contribute in a positive way like that. And that's what fuels me. And it never seems to grow old. It's, it's as if the camera is a magic box that fell from the sky with these instructions to seek out our greatness, the greatness of the world we live in and seek out what's working and focus on that. And uh, my work is not about some fantasy of a better world somewhere else. It's about the world right here, right now. Um, actually, when I was in high school, I really wanted to be a photojournalist. And I was very much drawn to, to the idea of photographing disasters and wars and suffering. And I, I never turned my attention away from feeling this part of life. But somewhere along the way, a switch flipped and I chose to become what I would call uh, a photo evolutionist. And I define that as someone who sees possibility and potential and sees a flower blossoming in a, a dry field of weeds and focuses on that and waters it and nurtures it. Um, and in my case, with a camera until it inevitably would grow into a, a massive field of flowers. And that's been my intention with photographing in prisons, with veterans, with the military, and, and so, so many more, so much more um, themes in my work. But, you know, it definitely doesn't have to be these big projects like that. This is all happening on an individual level when I'm working with, with people one-on-one -on -one because something comes over me when I have the camera in my hand, I have only one mission and it's fierce and that's to see someone's light. And it's such a strong force that there's never, never a question whether we will get there. How we're going to get there, I don't always know, but we will always get there. And when I see that person's light, I get so high and present and excited and they feel it and they, they start to glow. It's, they get high also. And it just, it real that's seeing someone and reflecting back to somebody that they are worthy of being seen and they're paid attention to. And that's how it was in the prisons. The camera made no difference whether I was making photographs or not. It was the act of paying attention. And it doesn't matter whether it's, it's somebody in a prison or I'm working with a, a doing a, a shoot with somebody who's about to have a baby uh, in, a, in a couple weeks and they're glowing and I'm just get so excited and it creates this whole energy of, of healing, I believe. And there's one story uh, that, that I can tell about that, that 
that really showed me this and it actually happened in a prison and it was in that same warden's prison warden coco salinas in central california and this was a very unique situation in this particular prison because they gave me a lot of freedom and um, something that I would never be granted in a place like San Quentin. But this was a, a high security prison. But so after I photographed a class, the the staff asked if I'd like to walk around the prison with one of the, the people in the class and do a body of work, like in the cell blocks, in the yard and wherever I wanted in, in the cell. And I chose it all. And so we were working through the prison and it was this really ripped dude with tats everywhere. And he had an amazing practice and, and uh, other prisoners were, were yelling at him and hooting and making fun of him. And he didn't even pay attention to any of that. And they, they left me alone. They were actually quite nice to me, but so he didn't pay attention to any of that. And I remember I was getting so I was so deep into it and so excited about what we were creating that it was it was so unique and nothing like it had I'd ever seen before and we were getting high off of it and I remember that after when we were done and we were just hanging out the first thing he said was man I want to do that and I said do what and he said be a yoga model. <laughs> and so uh, about a month later, I came back to that prison to do another uh, series. And I worked with him again. And I brought him a copy of, of Yoga Journal in which uh, there was a big spread about the work that he and I did together. And I gave him a copy of that magazine. And he was a yoga model. Oh, my. How did he respond to that when he saw that? Oh, just, you know, it's, it's exciting to see yourself published like that. He was, he was very grateful, very grateful. You know, I just want to comment that whole section that you just spoke to. I, I feel like for our listeners, I want to copy it and repaste it so that uh, our listeners don't have to go back. You know, it's like, it's like a, if I were reading a book just now, if this interview were a, a book, that section, I would mark, I would asterisk it. Like, you know, I, it's something that I would come back to again and again. I mean, it was so poetic how you spoke to the camera being this magic box from the sky, you know, that your work and your practice is not to perpetuate fantasy, but rather instead to truly engage the world as it is in all of its messiness and imperfections and um, you know, as we experience it on our own terms and, and on its own terms rather, and that the act of, of seeing someone and, and, and of being seen, you know, all of that coming to a culmination of, of an experience of a glow, an experience of a mutual glow I just, I just love how you say that. And you know, speaking of glow, that's what you're speaking to the, the, the creative process, the, the fire, the ardor, the, the, the work that one does to generate 
the, the heat and the friction, the creative tension that you're referring to is how I chose the word glow for our company's name. So I guess speaking of glow, now let's move into the yoga part of this conversation. And I'm just so curious, like how, how did that all start? How did you start taking photos of people in yoga poses? Um, let's move into that now. I always knew that if you want to become something, you have to immerse yourself in it. And I knew that I needed something in my life that was going to help me heal because I, I, I was, I think I was a little wild and, and, um, just didn't, didn't have a good grasp on, on my emotions and my, my moods and went through a lot of very difficult times. And I grew up in Los Angeles and I'd always heard about this yoga thing and meditation. So I always had this idea that these yoga people had like these superpowers and could, could deal with life on a level that was, they could manage their lives well. And so I started to volunteer for a magazine called Yogi Times, which was, which was around when you started. Mm -hmm. Yes, it was. Yeah, I remember that. And, and so once a month, I would be assigned to a different teacher. And I figured if I was going to photograph these yoga people, that maybe there was a chance I was going to sort of become one of these yoga people. <laughs> and, and so, you know, once in a while I would, I would, and I was also going to uh, sacred movement on main street in Venice and really developing a practice. And, you know, it's like, I, I looked around and I, I started to deepen my, my love for this figurative poetry. And I noticed that, between photographing the the teachers and just looking around in the classes that I noticed that it was some of the most beautiful figurative poetry I'd ever seen in the history of art. And I realized that this could be an extraordinary language to tell a positive story about humanity in pursuit of being better at being human. And that was the beginning. It took a while to evolve into that understanding of what I was doing and to broaden my subject matter to, to become truly all-inclusive to the best of my ability so far. But that's what I saw. I saw a very positive story about humanity that was worth telling. So let's come back briefly to, as you described it, this yoga thing. When I arrived in Los Angeles in 2005, I so much enjoyed taking classes with teachers all across Los Angeles. There was a buzz about it. Like you could feel it before, during, after classes. It felt like a very special moment of community, of innovation, a sort of mutual support, both for students and teachers, a very different and lovely time. By 2010, you had produced a book called impressions of yoga and toward the beginning of that book aaron reed provides a quote and he captures well what i'm referring to i'll read that now he says the phenomenon of the los angeles yoga scene might someday be recognized as a sibling of other influential 20th century cultural flowerings 
like the 1920s Paris avant-garde, the Liverpool, Manchester, British rock invasion, and San Francisco's Haight-Ashbury Summer of Love. If so, those of us lucky enough to have experienced it will forever be indebted to Robert Sturman for his definitive documentation. I'd say that's pretty accurate. And then also in that book, Shibare wrote a beautiful forward, which I'll read next. It's long, uh, but please bear with me because I think it serves as a nice transition to our next topic. She titles it, Seeing and Feeling the Light. When I first saw Robert Sturman's now vast body of artistic work covering every, everyone from Buddhist monks in Burma to B.B. King playing his living guitar, Lucille, I was overcome with joy and recognition. Joy in the kind of visceral reaction to something that makes you feel good from first sight, taste, and scent. And recognition of our, of our vibration beings. Robert's shimmering energetic waves of color radiating from his photographic paintings show us what we intuitively feel. All of creation has vibratory fields, which then emanates the power of life. I have witnessed Robert at work. He is as vital, passionate, and engaging as his art. His gift comes from finding the place, embodiment, and expression that are the essence of his subject. A musician with an instrument, a yogini unfolding an asana, a singer opening to a song. These ephemeral experiences hover in photograph. From Robert, in a beautiful, possessed, artist's way comes a fast, furious explosion of carving and painting directly on a Polaroid as it develops. In that moment, which can be lost or transformed, he carved paints the surface, bringing out its living energy. The unique alchemy requires spontaneous devotion to a precise moment, which is the wonder of his energetic photographs. He gazes directly into the now and finds and express the unique energy essence of his subject. I have loved the radiant portraits of my friends in the yoga world and also the reflection it provides me of my own nature. Let us celebrate each other, this earth and the art of being. Along with Robert's passion, we can open to feel what his art conveys. We are alive, full spectrum emanations of energetic magnitude. So you were able to experience that cultural moment from a unique perspective behind the camera. Can you speak to that moment in time and can you describe the technique that she's referring to? Wow. Just listening to that brings me back um, with a tear and a smile because it was a very special moment in time. But let me first describe the technique that she's referring to. Is a, it's a Polaroid technique that uh, I learned from William Giles, uh, the teacher that I apprenticed to while I was at the university. And it's a marriage of painting and photography. And how it works is Polaroid made this film back in the 70s was when it was first developed. And it had something, a glitch in it, where it didn't dry right away. So what artists began to do, not a lot of artists, but some artists in the uh, subcultural uh, world of photography would make the instant photograph with the Polaroid and it would come out. And then 
what I would do is I would warm it in the sun or against my skin and carve onto the surface of the image and accentuate the lines and the forms before the chemistry had time to dry. So I usually could work for an hour or two. And that's how they all were done. No, nothing was photoshopped and it was all done in the moment, right then and there. So she describes that I would feverishly and passionately work on it because during the shoot, I would say, okay, I have to sit down and start carving into the surface of the image and unifying the piece by with individual brush strokes so i was at the height of my career with that process of photography and it was at the time that i was doing projects with the grammys and the olympics and different musicians from bb king to fats domino and and uh, a, a project with FIFA, the World Cup. And m so my career was blossoming, but then Polaroid announced that they were going out of business. And that was my gateway into knowing that I needed to really get myself together in order to have the strength I needed to reinvent myself. And so that drew me into the world of yoga. And so, as I said, I, I volunteered for yogi times, and I'd be assigned to a, a different teacher every month. And I just started to devote my time to creating a, a, a very comprehensive body of work celebrating this practice that I was immersed in that I saw fit right into the history of art. So it was a time when people from all over the world were coming to do trainings down on Main Street and Shiva and Sean and Eric Schiffman and Annie Carpenter. And it was a, a vibrant time of learning and teachers would come from all over to do workshops Everyone came, musicians um, would, would stop on Main Street to do that. And, and on the circuit was, was Glow. So I would end up working with a different person every day down on the beach, which is only a block and a half away from Main Street. And I would just, people would just start to find me and I'd start to find people. And I was just creating this body of work of yogis by the sea. And I, it was a very idealistic vision of yoga and living um, free on the beach. And it very much reminded me of Picasso's work from the south of France on the Mediterranean, where he did this uh, photo, um, painted the Harlequins and the circus people. And so it reminded me of, of just a freedom. And I was finding myself as a yogi and I didn't, I was really a rookie. I didn't know anything. Uh, I, I didn't know anything about yoga and, but I fell in love with how beautiful it was. And I created this series that, that, really 
was I'm very proud of. It was it was it was a moment in time where where there was an energy, like you said, just this energy. And I was able to to have this unique process and of photography and devote my last few hundred rolls of this film that Polaroid actually generously gave to me uh, because I had done well with their their materials and and so it was the last of it and it was devoted to to yoga. And it wasn't until the very end of the film that I did a a shoot with a, a couple, a man and a woman, and he was in wheel pose and she was in a back bend draped over his wheel and her hair was hanging down and she had this expression that was of the agony and the ecstasy. And that was the moment when I realized that this was so much more than just this gorgeous practice of, of yogis by the sea. This was a way that I could begin to tell the story of what it is, what it feels like to be human. And after that was, was just led me into buying a digital camera and making that transition and photographing, trying, doing my best to tell a more emotional story and a, of the agony and the ecstasy, a tear and a smile, the joy and the sorrow. What was the first one? The first Polaroid that you carved into? That would have been a long time ago, around 1989. And I couldn't tell you what the first one was because in all honesty, I probably failed at 100 before I, I really developed the skill to make a great one. And because this was a, a technique that before there was Photoshop. So basically what I had to do is first I had to make sure that the light was perfect. So I had to understand the light because it's a very temperamental film. And then the image comes out of the camera and then I had to warm it up and then start a carving. So if I made a mistake, I would have to throw it away because there was no Photoshop that I knew of back then. And there was no, I'll fix it later in Photoshop. So what that really would do was, was pave the way for what I would later call the yoga of seeing. And what that was, was paying attention very close to attention because I couldn't make mistakes. And when I would aim, I would hit my target because this was very expensive film too. So I wasn't about to subscribe to the point of view that if I take 50, I might just get one. There was none of that. I really had to focus and, and get it right from start to finish. So it took me a long time, but if I can remember back to the first one, I would say that uh, more importantly was the first series. And I had to get good at it real quick because in 1989, uh, I was 
on campus living in at UC Santa Cruz, which is about an hour south of San Francisco. And in October, that's when the Loma Prieta earthquake occurred. And it was a, it was a pretty big earthquake. It was 7.1 and it destroyed a lot of the Marina district in San Francisco and different neighborhoods in Santa Cruz. It was, it was, it was a devastating quake. And I decided that I was going to document the earthquake using this painterly process of photography because I knew that it would hold the energy of the shaking, of the deterioration, of steps leading to nowhere. And it just had that, that, that this technique had that quality. And so I made quite a few trips up to San Francisco right after the earthquake and would document it. And this one time when I was sitting down on the sidewalk doing the carving, because all the carvings had to be done right there on the spot, a journalist from the Sentinel came up to me and she took an interest in what I was doing and she asked if she could write a a story, publish a story about my series. And so that was the, not only were those the first successful Polaroids that I ever did as a body of work, it was the first time I was ever published in a major publication, which led to other publications. But I was so excited about that. And I remember waking up at 4.30 in the morning or not being able to sleep the night before because I was so excited to be published. And I I woke up at 4.30 in the morning and drove around to find wherever the newspaper delivery person was dropping off papers so I could get some. And I was just completely ecstatic. And, you know, interestingly enough, I mean, I'm not that, I don't do that anymore, but I still, to this day, and I've been published quite a few times, but I still am so excited anytime something is going to be published of my work because it's really, it's it's such a gift that people are even interested in what I'm putting my heart into and my expression into. And so when uh, the mail per carrier comes to, and I know a, a yoga journal's going to show up with one of my images. Um, I can't wait to go to the mailbox and, and, and see it. And I hope, I don't think that will ever change. I love the photo of your first three Polaroid cameras. They look extremely beat up and pa- painted. I think you, you, or maybe you bought them used. Uh, you know, they've I bought them used and I, I used to them. always, always paint them. Okay. Uh, give them somewhat of a war face or something. It was very <laughs> tribal. Um, and I, I, you know, even when I transitioned from that $5 Polaroid, which you, I probably had about 50 of them, it, that all from the flea market. Um, but even when I transitioned to, from that to a digital camera, I, it, no matter how expensive the camera was, I painted those too. And I think it was always to remind myself that it's just not that serious and that I am an artist. 
and the and also that the equipment was secondary to the vision and uh, a great uh, somebody who's who's deeply uh spent a lot of time with their craft um should be able to make a five dollar camera sing a beautiful song in addition to a five thousand dollar camera to sing a beautiful song and um yes so that's why they were painted and also they uh people wouldn't take me seriously like you ever be nervous because who is this guy who's got a painted camera how how <laughs> whatever you know <laughs> this is fun With crazy hair and unruly beard and yeah wild man right uh, so why the yoga of seeing you know it's possible some or many of our listeners might find or be curious about why the word yoga before seeing is used like what i guess what what does yoga mean to you in that context and how does it relate to seeing in that context it, it means paying attention and being deeply connected to to what my intentions are and not guessing like for instance like um, subscribing to the belief system that if you if you snap 1,000 exposures, then you just might get lucky and get one that that editor likes. What about paying attention, slowing down, being mindful, and waiting to click that button till it's the right moment and being so present that okay i got it and then walking away without a war in your head oh i could have done this or i should have done that or oh you know and just this whole neurosis that often occurs when we're taking pictures like when somebody hands me their iphone and asks me to take a picture i take one and that's unheard of. You know, you hand someone your phone and there's 16 pictures in there, all the same exact thing. Yeah, I'm that guy. Different angles, <laughs> high, low. <laughs> and there's nothing wrong with that. That's, that's actually quite generous of you to do all the different angles and give them choices like that. But I'm, I'm more speaking from how I was trained. And there's a, a an, oh, and by the way, the, the one taking one got me in trouble recently when I, I made a photograph, took a photograph of my mom and sister. My sister's <laughs> eyes were closed. So that <laughs> philosophy is there's got to be two or three now. But where I'm coming from is one of the first assignments that William Giles gave to me as an apprentice was he would load up the camera with one exposure. And the assignment was, you can only make one photograph today. And whether it happened at 6.30 in the morning, noon, 9 o'clock at night, it didn't matter. You just, you only were permitted 
to press the shutter once. And so that, that trained me to, that's, that's not an easy assignment because there's, it just, a lot of mistakes can happen and your, your day is, is done. So that just trained me to, to pay attention and consider, uh, what I was looking at and take the guessing out of the equation. Yeah. Well, you know, one thing that always struck me about the particular yoga of seeing work and uh, the work you did with people around the world, you know, I love how you speak to that. You're showing people around the world doing some form of, of, inner and outer work, some sort of mindful movement, uh, which is an inner and an outer process, a physical and you know, an emotional, intellectual feelings type of work. And you speak to them as like reaching, slowing down, like wanting to get better, seekers in a sense. And it's one of the things that I get goosebumps thinking about it because you're showing this common you're showing uh, some sort of you're showing our common humanity in these images. Yeah, it, it's 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 a it's a major theme, um, just celebrating diversity and inclusivity and equality. And um, what better way to do that than photograph everyone? Everyone on everyone on an equal playing field that is simply just embracing this practice because they want they want a better life. It's really that simple. They just want to be better at it and process things and, and just find develop the tools to to be able to persevere in, in a in a in a what can be a, a very difficult existence. So children, um, Tao Porchon Lynch, who was uh, lived to 101, was a main uh, subject of my work for many years. And just telling this story that that is very inspiring of of human beings wanting to be their best. And that reaching is a is a is something that I've seen throughout the history of art and whether it's reaching towards for the divine or reaching because uh of of a, a horrific event like uh the raft of medusa which is something that you see when you walk into the louvre but it's just it's humanity's longing and i think that that's a a beautiful common theme that we have is that we are we are all longing and yoga is the perfect language for me to tell that story. Mm. The, I'm talking about what, no, I'm not, I'm not just talking about it as, as, um, as like yoga practice. I'm talking about it as a visual language of the body in positions to show surrender, the opening of the heart, the reaching towards something greater, the going inside, the taking the time, stillness. Yeah. Yeah, it's 
you know, I see, you know, connection, compassion, challenge, you know, when you speak about the reaching in that way, I, I think of those three things. Connection, challenge, compassion. Yeah. The, you know, in, in striving and reaching and, and working through our existential longing, a part of that process, a very natural process is working through confusion. And you'd mentioned in a recent Instagram post that, you know, many of us in the yoga world are confused. Side note, do you I want to did speak, say that. Do you want to speak to that? Cause and I can do no, Absolutely. Okay. So then I absolutely. want to, so then I want to ask, like, how did it feel to write Go that? Go for it. Okay. So how did it feel to write that publicly and what's behind that statement for you? And I think what was on the, it, okay. So you had a Charles Bukowski quote that accompanied that statement, <laughs> which I said, an intellectual, yeah, that was a loaded, a loaded post, wasn't it? It sure was. That's why I have to ask you about yeah. it. Yeah. An intellectual okay. says a simple thing in a hard way. And an artist says a hard thing in a simple way. Well, that Bukowski quote has always uh, struck me as as profound um, because that's one of the goals that I have with my work is to uh, embrace simplicity. And whether somebody has ever heard of yoga, seen yoga, practiced yoga, it doesn't matter. I want them to be able to experience my images and and feel them, um, whether it's a third grader or um, somebody who's 95 years old. So I love, I've always loved that quote by Bukowski, but what this is leading to is I was actually making a post. I was so moved by your podcast with Douglas Brooks that that post was trying to inspire people to to l listen to that mm. podcast and to discover him. Mm. And because what was happening was, I mean, yeah, that is, is definitely a loaded um, statement. And I don't want it to be a blanket statement because maybe it, maybe a lot of people aren't uh, lost and uncertain, but I think that it would seem pretty obvious that a lot of people's worlds got ripped apart and the identity that people had with a world that they called their world with yoga was, was no longer. Um, and there's no center. I would say that when I listened to Douglas Brooks and he, he said a lot of amazing things, obviously, and you did a, a fantastic job interviewing him. But when he, when he just broke it down to yoga being a deeper, uh, a, a pursuit of a deeper intimacy and to create value in a worldly life, I just, it struck me that this is a guy who is talking about some real yoga stuff that we have a perfect opportunity to embrace in our solitude. And so I was basically just saying that this would be a really good time to discover this guy and, and hear some of this because maybe there's some, maybe there's some work to be done. I know for me that 
I was traveling all over the world and I was very busy and, and things were so loud. The world is so loud. And having this time, the pandemic time, was a great gift to me in a lot of ways because I could no longer put something off that I knew had to be done inside of myself. And I, I felt like the listening to a conversation with someone like Douglas Brooks would help people to uh, feel better about what they need to do or what they're doing, that somehow it, it could be useful to this, what often we're scared to face. He's, he, he offers an invitation to go for it. Uh, that's beautiful. Thank you for listening to it. And I, I know you're a voice in uh, certain communities that people look to for guidance in certain moments. And so uh, it doesn't surprise me that that episode resonated with you since your worldview and your sensibilities and your, your work, your art mirror many of points of view shared in that episode. Yeah, I loved it. It was he was he was speaking to uh, my love for stoicism as well. Yeah, he's he's a fan of Marcus Aurelius. I know. So I was really inspired by a recent lunch that you and I had, and uh, at that point we knew we were going to have this conversation. So I took a bunch of notes and. You're at a point in your life and your trajectory with your work where you're contemplating a message that was shared with you by one of your teachers long ago. And this idea that one, it helps for one to reinvent oneself every 10 years. And it's interesting in my notes, I have a blank after this statement where you must have said, I'm done doing anything that doesn't, and it's blank. And I don't know why I didn't fill it in, but I'm wondering if you could complete that sentence for us. I'm done doing anything that doesn't. That's interesting that you left it blank because I think leaving things blank until the answer comes is a good thing to do. And that's something that I've been giving myself permission to do is just not know, not know what's next. And yeah, if I look at my career, I pretty much reinvented myself every 10 years. Something happened that usually forced me to reinvent myself. And for and and that time had come with my involvement with being deeply immersed in the celebration of yoga, but I have to say the world is a very big place. And so it can extend far past 10 years, but there is a reinvention that has needed to occur. And I think it was about two years before the pandemic, I started to prepare for a pause, a sabbatical. And because I was traveling so much in my my career, I was I was blowing in the wind. I'd go wherever the wind took me, and it was a lot of a lot of days away from my home. And I decided I didn't want to do that anymore, and just wanted to 
become just wait for the next answer to what I was going to do. But I, I definitely knew that I wanted to become intimate with my own space and develop, evolve in ways that I couldn't by being so busy, by going all over the world and checking into hotels and, and, and all that kind of stuff. So, so when the pandemic hit, I, I completely stopped, but, and I was ready for it. That was about when I was, I was going to start easing, like really easing off. And I just wanted to stop and, and listen. And my father was, he was still alive, but was, was wrestling with uh, cancer. And I wanted to show up for him and hold space for him and just use a moment in time for me to reflect on who I've been, where I've been, what I've been all about, my regrets, my failures, um, having philosophical conversations with my father about his life. And having the opportunity to reflect back to him that his life has had tremendous value and be an exemplification of that so that he could see himself in me and I need to show up and take responsibility and, and really look at my life to be able to do that. And as of now, I am, it's, it's still blank and I'm very comfortable with it being blank. I have ideas. I, I do know that, that I could fill any museum in the world with a dynamic exhibition celebrating humanity, the diversity of humanity, all in pursuit of, of being better at being human, a very exciting show. And that's something that I, I have my eye on. And just slowing down and seeing what's next and that's what's happening i'd also written down that like you had mentioned you you want to feel your intimacy with life through your work and that life is way more important to you than your art and that life purpose is there and ever present but you enjoy simply being enchanted through your work and the people with whom you feel gratitude to reflect back to them their life. Those were also in my notes, which I thought were very powerful statements by you. I love it. I love it. <laughs> I did say that. Um, yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's an opportunity. Being a photographer, which they don't, didn't teach me at the academy, is, is really comes down to, obviously, you need to know how to make the photograph and you like just you have to you have to have some skills but in my opinion much more important than the mechanical skills are the skills of of being intimate with life and connecting with the people and ideas that you're creating with you know i used to be a thief um, I know that sounds sounds a little dramatic, but what I mean by that is for many years as a photographer, it was more important to me, and I didn't know it at the time, but it was more important to me to get something, 
to get a great photograph, to win the prize, to this, that. And it wasn't until um, I visited India for the first time that I realized that because there was a, there was a, when you go to India, first of all, everybody wanted a, a Polaroid picture because it just came out of the camera. So I had what literally felt like hundreds of people a day asking me one for me, sir, one for me. And I had to say no all the time. No, because I really didn't have that much film, but I, I didn't understand how to say no. My no was a, was a, was a mean no. It was a dismissive no. It was a selfish no. And it wasn't until this priest in the midst of what seemed like hundreds of people in, in Varanasi, he asked me, sir, please, one, one for my family, one for my family. And I said, no. And then the next day, when I went back there, he, uh, he looked at me and somehow he knew my name. And he said, Robert, would you like a cup of chai? And I recognized him from the day before as one of the people that I instinctively said no or nay nay. And in that moment, his kindness broke me. Mm. And I proceeded to make the most beautiful photograph I could of him and his family uh, using this Polaroid process. And I remember that I went to the airport that night to go to Kathmandu and I was so sad, but I had so much joy at the same time because I knew, I, I think I was sad because all right, man, the old, the old me was dead mm -hmm. there was no more mm -hmm. he was gone and that broke my heart in a way but it also broke my heart and brought me to a lot of tears in realizing that i was a thief and also making the choice that i would never steal again i would never take a picture again i would make a picture with the people i was working with and it was a together, an act done together, a collaboration of never looking down on, never stealing, never taking advantage, manipulating. And that was the greatest photographic lesson I ever learned. And from there, I, I went on to Nepal and I had about a, a month left of that journey. And... I photographed from a very different perspective and proceeded to do one of one of the, the most beautiful bodies of work that I, I've, I've ever created. Um, uh, it's yes, it's something that that has touched me deeply. It, but there was something about that experience, something that happened was it didn't matter the work didn't matter, even though I was so proud of the work and it, and it was so comprehensive and, and I didn't want to lose it. But there was a feeling in me that was like, 
it didn't matter if anyone ever saw this work or if the work was destroyed because it changed me. And because, because I changed, the world changed. And that was the very moment that I finally realized what Gandhi was referring to when he said, be the change you wish to see in the world. It's hmm. powerful. I have goosebumps. Thank you for sharing that. In India is a very special place. I, there are many opportunities for one's heart to be cracked open in India and surrounding countries. Yeah, everyone's got their story. Mm -hmm. I'd love to hear yours. Let's let's do another interview after this at some point. Uh -huh, I knew we, you were we'll going to do that. that. I've got to ask right. you one last question. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, it's funny. I sent you that photo once of me at the Taj Mahal at at twenty. What I don't know, two or three, where I I, I look like a <laughs> I, I really I don't know old baggy pants on and I look extremely young and. I had a point and shoot camera and somehow this lovely father and his son ended up in the photo and it's just so sweet. It's not my heart cracking open story that you're looking for, but, uh, right. But let me tell you something about that photo. So when I was the last time I was in India, you, when you knew I was there, you sent me that photo of you at the Taj right. and I still, I learned something from that photo because that was mm. like a like a Kodachrome type of image mm -hmm. that you really could feel the the Kodak mm -hmm. in it. And but I, I remember looking at that mysterious father and son that mm -hmm. were mm -hmm. off to the side mm -hmm. and just being so intrigued and being so fascinated with how a photograph could carry that story. And now that father and son live inside of me just because of that snapshot. Profound. Mm. And you've met that proverbial father and son on trains, buses in those countries who are taking similar trips or pilgrimages to see certain things and how tender and special that moment is. Yes. Last question, Robert. What nourishes you what what are some of your non-negotiables that you need either on a daily occurrence or semi-daily occurrence that keeps you going keeps you inspired keeps you feeling well flourishing well uh there's a couple and one of the one of the more subtle ones is just quiet I need a lot of quiet. I need to be able to just make appointments with myself and just sit and do nothing. No phone, uh, nothing. Just just sit and breathe and just, just listen to the wind or the birds and just do absolutely nothing. And more and more of it uh, as time goes on because that in that solitude, that's where I find so much strength. Um, but another more interesting one is something that I've been doing now for about two years and it on and off, it has become day, it more and more has become daily. 
and that is an ice practice. And it, it's, it's something that I decided that I wanted to do because I heard Wim Hof speak about it. I, I'd had friends in, that I worked with in the military and uh, first responders that healed so much through this practice. And, and they always tried to get me to go in the ice. And I was like, no, I don't want to be cold. And then I heard Wim Hof speak about two and a half years ago. And he spoke about depression, rewiring the nervous system, and stuff that was so fascinating to me that I wanted to do. Because I've, I've wrestled with a little bit of, I wouldn't say it's clinical depression, but a, like a low level of depression where I just can't really access, couldn't really access the joy like I wanted to. Mm-hmm. And so the next day after hearing him speak, I went and bought one of these flat freezers, chest freezers, and I converted it. And I've been sitting in the ice ever since. And that is completely non-negotiable just sitting in 28 degree water water and and finding peace it's changed my life is there a time of day and a duration there's no particular time of day and the duration is anywhere from 2 minutes to 5 minutes just once you, you don't go in and out no just once a day beautiful robert anything else you'd like to add just that um i'm really honored to be on your podcast and I have so much respect for you. I remember the first day I met you and, and you were telling me about this, putting people in the computer so people could watch at home. And I didn't quite understand what you were doing. (laughs) Don't worry. You and everyone else, even my parents, (laughs) but it, it turned out to be just, a revolutionary idea and but all along the way just watching you evolve with it just as a human being and how that humanity has always come through your business and how you've you've dealt with the workspace and change and I've just I, I I've always admired how you how you do things with so much integrity and kindness and you see things from all angles and it just it's amazing it's seriously that's that's why we're i i am so honored to be your friend so thank you for that derek wow thank you robert that's so sweet of you i'm honored that you shared so vulnerably and authentically in this conversation and that i have the privilege to call you a friend and yes you know the opportunity to serve glow our team our members has been an opportunity of learning always learning from mistakes and successes and the experience of the personal growth that comes from that which is part of what i think you're referring to i'm just grateful i still get to do this work and and I also have so much respect for you too. I've benefited from your point of view from our time together over the years. You as an artist, as someone who sees and feels deeply discussing life in general, our midlife journeys, our common professional experiences, our relationship has certainly been an anchor and a source of help for me during these past 12 years through 
the many ups and downs. So it makes me smile to know that this conversation will live on our Glow podcast. Thank you. Likewise. Thank you, Derek. Thank you to our entire team behind the scenes at Glow. I'm so grateful for your care and commitment to serving our members around the world. Thank you to our teachers for so beautifully sharing your gifts and talents. I'm also grateful to our lovely community of GLOW members. You've supported us since 2008, and because of you, we get to continue to do the work we love. It's the combined support of our team, our teachers, and our community that grants me the privilege to continue to bring you the GLOW podcast. Thank you to Lee Schneider, Red Cub Agency, for production support. And the beautiful music you're hearing now is by Carrie Rodriguez and her husband, Luke Jacobs. And remember, take care of yourself because our world needs you. Thank you for coming on this journey with me. You can find The Glow Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or glo.com slash podcast, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm Derek Mills.